Now, Father, I ask your blessing on this time as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. Father, give us the capacity to see into our own souls clearly relative to our relationship with you. And most of all, Father, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know Christ that today may be the day of salvation for them. So give them ears, Lord, to hear. Only you can renew their desires. Give them new and holy desires, perhaps that they've never known before. Desires and hungers and thirst to know you and to be forgiven of their sin and to be made right with God, reconciled to God by your blood and righteousness. Teach us now, Father, what the picture of the table of communion is about, and be glorified in our response, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in John 6 this morning, as we have been, and um, this passage, starting with verse 35 through um, verse 58 and even beyond, all the way to the end at 71, is so deep and so wide and so high and so magnificent that I can hardly touch it this morning because we need to abbreviate our time together um, so that we'll have time to share in the Lord's table, which is the priority this morning. And so in a few minutes, we'll be sharing the Lord's table together. And as we pray, uh, prepare for, um, for this ordinance, I want us to think about why Jesus set up the Lord's table, this picture of the gospel, why did he decide to make it something that would involve bread and wine, or in, in our case, grape juice? Um, I understand, and you understand, do we not, that the bread is a, is a representation, it's a symbol, it's a picture of the body of Christ, and the wine or the juice is a picture of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And someone might observe that Jesus based the Lord's Supper on the feast of the Passover, which included bread and wine. And that's true. That takes it back uh, to its roots to some level. And yet I wonder, we could, we could spend time on Passover, and, and, and maybe at a different time we can, but we'll have to leave that for another time. What I want us to see and consider this morning is that the Lord's table is a physical picture of the gospel. The Lord's table is a visual, physical, physical in the sense that we can touch it and taste it, literally taste it. It is a picture of the gospel. Um, but my question is, why did he set it up? Why did he set it up like this? Why is the official picture of the gospel that we're to participate in again and again and again for the rest of our lives as believers, why, why didn't he set it up in a different way? Why didn't he set up the picture of the gospel in some other way where we would come in and we would bow and, and we would say prescribed prayer and we would cross ourselves or something like that, something religious? Why eating and drinking? It's a question I'd actually never thought of before. Why are the chief features of his picture of the gospel, why do they involve eating and drinking? Doesn't that, I mean, when you think about it, does it seem strange to you? 
would, if, if you had come from the unbelieving world and, and, and maybe from a different culture altogether and, and come and see what believers do here, would it be strange to you? I mean, the Romans thought that when, um, when Christians talked about the Lord's table, it had something to do with eating his flesh and drinking his blood, which comes from here in chapter 6 of John. They thought it involved cannibalism, and it because they rejected all the gods of the Romans, it was also atheism, and that's part of the reason that they were persecuted. It was a misunderstanding. But it seems strange to them. What I want us to see this morning is that by requiring this picture of the gospel to involve eating and drinking, Jesus is showing us exactly what saving faith is like. It's more than thinking about Jesus. It's more than thinking about Jesus in an orthodox manner, that is, in a manner that is true to sound doctrine of the scriptures. It involves more than that, something that is helpfully and I think powerfully pictured by the act of eating and drinking. Okay, you with me so far? John 6, 35 through 37. Let's just take a look, and again, we don't have a lot of time with this, so we'll come back next time. Jesus said to them, now, who's he talking to? He's talking to the people that ate the loaves and the fish when he fed the 5,000. Now he's on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They're in a synagogue. He's offering what is typically referred to as the bread of life discourse, and he says to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will not thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. I will not cast out anyone who comes to me. Now this is important. To this point, Jesus has been speaking in kind of cryptic language. They don't know what he's getting at with this whole bread, bread of life motif. This is, uh, I think, in one of the services last week, we talked about in the Old Testament, the language of the Proverbs. There's a, there's a technical name for this kind of cryptic language. It is mashal, and it means a dark saying or riddle. And the point is... You, the authors would use this as kind of a teaser to get you to think about what they're saying, to get, get you engaged so that you go, you go down this way and, and, and hit a roadblock. That's not what he means. That's not what he means. That's not what he means. And that can't be what he means. He must mean this. And then you've got it. But it takes work. He's not spoon-feeding us. And he didn't do that with the woman at the well. And he didn't do it here after feeding the 5,000. He is using this cryptic, riddle-like language. And so how do we interpret this riddle-like language? Well, typical of Jesus, eventually he gives you the interpretive key that you kind of put in to the lock of his riddle and give it a quick turn, and now you've got it. So what is the interpretive key? Very first words he says here in chapter 35, I am the bread. I am the bread of life. Everything else I said is not understandable until you understand that I am talking not about physical bread. I am talking about me. I'm not talking about manna that came out of heaven. I'm talking about me. I am the bread. 
I am the bread will permanently satisfy the hunger of your souls. And the scripture often speaks metaphorically of man's need for God in terms of hunger and thirst. I'll give you some examples. One of them we already read this morning, but here's one. Psalm 42, 1 and 2. You're familiar with this. As a deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come to appear before God? You, you hear it, that longing like a deer that's being hunted, he's on the run, and he's tired, and he's thirsty, and he's looking for water. This is a picture of human beings who live before the face of God. Listen, you live in relation to a lot of people and a lot of things, but the really important thing for you to know, you as a human being, the most important thing you should know is that you live in relation to God. You say, well, I don't believe in God. That doesn't change that a bit. He believes in you. He knows who you are. He knows everything about you. And deny him if you want to. But you live in relation to God. And ultimately, your eternal life will be determined by how you responded to God. And I think I said last week, you may live in such a way that you let other people determine your identity. doesn't matter. God determines your identity. And you live best when you live like he designed you to live. Last week, I can't remember what I said in what service. But we talked about you have hands, but you don't know what to do with them until God tells you, this is why I made your hands. You have eyes, but you don't know what to do with them until God in his word tells you, this is why I made eyes. You have feet, but you have no idea how to use them until God has said to you, this is why I gave you feet. You live in relation to God. God defines you. God empowers you. God directs you. God warns you because God knows all and he loves you and he wants what's best for you. We live before the face of God. We live in relation to God. And so in our heart of hearts, in our souls, we hunger for God. But we can try to satisfy that hunger 10,000 other ways, and we do. Here's another one, Psalm 63, 1. Oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for God. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there's no water. And, and scholars will say, he obviously wrote this in the desert. And he might have. He spent a lot of time, I mean, everything in Israel is desert. I mean, maybe not back then. But there were times when he was in the wilderness. I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think he's talking about those times when you just know something is wrong, something is missing. I need God. In Isaiah 55, if there's any doubt, here's the gospel invitation out of the very, almost second to last chapter of Isaiah, 66 chapters. Uh, not second to last, but about 10 last. Okay, 11. 55. Isaiah 55, 1 and 2 says this. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? And why do you spend your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen to me 
and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. We live as people who God designed to be hungry, to know hungry at many different levels. And he made us to live, primarily we live in relation to God. Therefore, our hunger was designed to drive us to him where he will satisfy our souls. He will reconcile us to God. That's how our souls are satisfied. And so in keeping with Old Testament language, Jesus speaks of our need of him in terms of eating and drinking. That's how they did it in the Old Testament. And it's perfect. And I hope to show you why. By the way, here is Jesus' first I am plus a metaphor. I am. Now, there are a number of I am passages throughout the Gospels where, for instance, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Ego, a me. I am. And, and that little phrase, I am, it almost got him killed many, many times because the Pharisees knew what he was saying because that's what God said when Moses said, tell me your name. And he said, I am that I am. Now, I'm not sure that's exactly what Jesus is saying here, but the construction is the same. And seven times in the Gospel of John, he uses that phrase, ego me, I am, and connects it with a metaphor. Now, watch this. I am what? The bread of life. What's he mean? He means, I am the satisfier and sustainer of your soul. I am the light of the world. What's that mean? I am the dispeller of sin's darkness. I am the gate, he says in chapter 10, verse 7 and 9. In other words, I am your entrance into security and fellowship. I am the entrance. I am the good shepherd. In other words, I am your protector and your guide. You're looking for guidance? Come to me. Come to my word. Don't make it up. Don't listen to the world. Don't invent things. Come to my word. I am the resurrection and the life. In other words, I am your hope in death. Not only your death, but also the death of those you love. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That is, I am certainty in the midst of all of your complexity. And some of you got really, really complex lives. I am the way. Those of you who are going to college, your lives are a mess complex. I know what it's like. There's so much complexity and so many messages coming at you. You need to know Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. Otherwise, you're just going to get blown off course. You're going to go into all kinds of things that are going to mess you up. I am the vine. What does that mean? I am the source of vitality, that's life, and fruitfulness. John 15, 1 through 5. And you can look at that list on the notes online later. But here he is offering himself in this first metaphor of the seven. And he says, I am, ego, a me, the bread of life. And Jesus is not simply... Um, trying to use a metaphor here. Bread of life is not simply Jesus inviting them into intellectual belief in him, but rather it is Jesus inviting, listen, he is inviting them and us to internalize him into ourselves. It's not just think about me rightly, it's 
take me into your soul. Think about it. I mean, when you have a loaf of bread, I was going to bring one up here. You have a loaf of bread. Let's, let's say it's a big one we got from, uh, what's the French place down the street? La Madeleine. You know, one of those big bread things. Um, it's not enough just to say, I believe that's bread. Well, you must not be hungry anymore. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. That would be easy. We'd all be skinny. That was a tentative laugh, wasn't it? <laughs> when you have a life of loaf of bread, it does no good simply to look at it and smell it and theorize about it and say, I believe in bread. It does you no good until when? Until you eat it. Until you internalize it. Listen, light, he said, I'm the light of the world. Light is of no use if you don't put yourself under its illuminating glow. If I'm standing out in the dark trying to read a book and I can't read it and I say, oh, there's a light over there. I believe in that light. Well, who cares? Until you get under it, you'll never be able to see. Um, where am I? Light, bread, yes. A gate is no good unless you step through it. There's a beautiful house, a beautiful mansion. It's yours. Step through. It's no good just to look at it and take pictures of it and show it to your friends. A shepherd benefits you not at all if you're a sheep unless you follow him. You see, Jesus is not simply someone to believe in. He is not just someone to acknowledge. He is someone to take into the core of your being, to eat him, to drink him, to take him into the very fiber, cells, and thought processes of your soul so that he transforms all the life that is yours into the life that is his. Beloved, what I'm suggesting to you is this is what it means to believe. It's not just thinking. It is eating and drinking and internalizing and making all that Christ is part of who you are. And this is why Jesus said things like in Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that I have commanded you? It's like bread saying, why do you say I'm so good to eat and you never eat me? It's like a well of water or a spring of living water. Why do you say I'm so refreshing? You have never once tasted me. You just think about me. You take pictures of me. You see movies about me. You read books about me. And you never drink for yourself. And so it is with the bread of life. You must eat it to receive its benefits which is the same thing as saying you must receive Jesus into your life just as he offers himself. Hendrickson, to put it in a more scholarly manner, says this, it is through faith that is through intimate union with him, assimilating him spiritually as physical bread is assimilated physically that man attains to everlasting life. And the metaphor is very similar to the kind of thing Jesus said to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, he said this, whoever drinks of the water that I give shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. 
but you've got to drink it. Again, we read in John chapter 7, Now, on the last day of the feast, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and he cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. How is it that you can live in relation to God and not be satisfied? It's because you won't drink the water, you won't eat the bread. You just want to talk about God. You want to dress in a manner, you know, with the robes and the bells and the sashes and the, and the, hot, the hat, the costume. You, you want to say that you live in relation to God, but you don't know him if you've never eaten, if you've never drunk from him. Again, we read, oh boy, again and again. Let's just get back to our passage here in, in chapter 6. Jesus is speaking to who? The very people who ate the bread that he produced out of five loaves and two sardines. Two fish. Maybe they were bigger than sardines. I don't know. When he fed the 5,000, I mean, these were the same people. And the amazing thing, however, is even though Jesus repeatedly proved his identity, and even though the crowds had personally benefited from following Jesus, they still didn't believe in him. Why? Because there's a difference between saying you're following him and internalizing who he is, making him yours. And I understand theologically he makes you his. But read Paul. He, he says it both ways. They would not bow the knee. They would not come to him on his terms. They simply would not believe. And that's what he says, verse 36. But I say to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. You see me, but you don't see me. You don't see my glory. Jesus is charging the Galileans here with unbelief. They had seen him, and they were impressed by his miracles, and they even suspected that he might be the great prophet that Moses predicted, but they did not see him for who he truly was. And Constable makes this statement that I think is, is excellent. He says, physical sight and spiritual sight in this context are two entirely different things. They could see him, but they were totally blind to him. Why? What cures blindness? Eat the bread. Drink the cup. Your blindness is healed. It's gone. Your spiritual blindness is gone. You might ask, how could they be so blind? I mean, if, if Jesus were here in Fort Worth, then we would believe in him. Um, surely you're not thinking that. I mean, it, it sounds like a, a plausible question. But the past couple of weeks, we've learned that people are often blinded by their own desires. This is the first blinding influence. Your own desires. We do what we do because we want what we want. And no amount of, amount of evidence will change that. We do what we do because we want what we want. But there's also another blinding influence upon the lives of those who don't believe that keep them from seeing and delighting in the awesome goodness and glory of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4 says this. Paul writes, even if our gospel is veiled, in other words, you can't see it. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case, watch this, the God of this world. Now, he's not talking about the Father. He's talking about Satan here. 
The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And so, when you think about God's mission to call to himself a people without number, who, who cannot be numbered in the last day, who will worship Jesus Christ, will be a gift to Jesus Christ for all eternity. And you think, how in the world can that happen? I mean, how viable a plan is that? Because you've got people who not only are blinded by Satan and his minions, but they're also self-blinded. They, they have enough influence of their own internal sin to keep them from seeing. How in the world can anyone believe how can anybody believe? And that's a great question. And one that we'll delve into more deeply next week. But let me just answer it very succinctly by saying this. The only ones who will be saved in the end are those, listen, those whose desires the Father and the Spirit have actively and independently changed by the power of his regenerating grace. Or, let's see it like Jesus says it, verse 37. Here he is, all these people. He just accused them, verse 36. You don't believe me. And the implication here, but that doesn't ruin the Father's plan because all, how many? All, how many? All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Beloved, that's, we don't use the word unfathomable very often. There are some words that I think we should reserve for God, like awesome. It should be a God word and not a contemporary Christian song word or your zipline word. Um, God is awesome. Unfathomable is another great God word. We never reach the depths. How do, we, how do we understand this? How do we reconcile it? But that's not really the point of this message. We'll explore this passage together. It's going to lead us into some very deep water, to be sure. But in reality, if you don't personally know Jesus Christ this morning, the question for you is very simple. What's keeping you from believing and receiving him today? Right now, he offers himself as the living bread, and he has already offered himself as the living water. What keeps you from receiving him? Why have you not yet eaten the bread that gives eternal life? And you may be answering right now, if you've been following along, you, may be say, you might be thinking, well, that's a silly question because you just told me why I'm not. You just said you don't have the desire to do it. It's, it's part of the intrinsic nature of being a sinner, and Satan is blinding my eyes. I can't do anything. That's step one. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who finally conclude, I can't offer God anything. I can't make him save me. I can't make him change me. The only thing I have to offer is my sin, my shame, my guilt. It's true. Is there anything I can do? Yep. One, you can ask. You can ask.
if you could really see your life as God sees it, you would know that deep down in your soul, you are desperately hungry and thirsty for something. And nothing in this world that you have tried has really been that much help except for brief moments of excitement and joy and happiness that lead to further dissatisfaction. And Jesus offers himself to you now as the living water, as he offered himself then, as the bread of life. Come and drink deeply of him. Come and feast on all that he has promised to be for you, that God has promised to be for you in Jesus. I believe the offer is legitimate. And if you sense that he is right now giving you a hunger and thirst for Christ that perhaps you've never known before, then I plead with you, come to him with a broken heart. Come to him with a thirsty soul that says something like, Lord Jesus, I have nothing to offer you but my brokenness, my guilt, my sin. I have nothing by which to commend myself to you. I have, I have nowhere else to turn and then ask him, will you receive me? Will you accept me? Will you let me drink from the spring of living water? God has scares the fire out of me that I don't have a thirst for the water of life. And I don't have a hunger for the bread of life. Would you change that in me? Take my life. Do whatever you will with it. I trust you. I entrust my life and all my hope you completely forgive me save me from the merits of Christ and make me your own you are the shepherd make me a sheep you are the, the house on the other side of the gate let me in you are the light I am in darkness bring me into your light I can't do it. You must do it for me. And this is what the people in John chapter 6 absolutely would not do. But for you, Jesus says, verse 37, whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. And isn't that great news? Isn't that great news? And the way Jesus presents it, to believe in him is not simply to start thinking about him in a manner that's theologically correct. You say, well, well why do you have to say that? You have to say that today. Because for some reason in America, and through the influence of certain local seminaries in the Metroplex, this idea has become pervasive. All you have to do is acknowledge who Jesus is, like saying, yeah, I see, I see bread and it looks satisfying. I bet it satisfies somebody. It's an intellectual thing. Even some of the commentators I read this week. Intellectual assent. That doesn't save you. The way Jesus presents it to believe in him is not simply to start thinking about him in a manner that's theologically correct. It's more like eating him and drinking him. It's like putting yourself under his light, getting into his sheepfold, becoming one of his it's taking him into the deepest parts where, where you literally say to God, everything, every part of me, every thought I've ever had, every sin I've ever committed, it's all yours. Come, do with it, whatever you want. 
I am yours, I'm yours, I'm yours, I don't want to be mine anymore. All I do is mess me up. And so as we come to the Lord's table this morning, let's come realizing that eating the bread and drinking of the cup is the perfect picture of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 10, 16, Paul asks, is not the cup of blessing which we bless the sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break the sharing in the body of Christ? Now, he's not saying if you eat the bread and you drink the juice, you get saved. It's not what he's saying. He's saying is, this is what we have in common as believers. All of us who truly know him, we've eaten the bread. And we have drunk the wine. And when we come together around the physical bread and the physical wine, it just reminds us of the grace of the spiritual eating and drinking that he gave us the hunger and the thirst to do. Isn't that beautiful? And so I plead with you, if you've never come to him in the way that he prescribes, humble, as it were, on your face, knowing that there's nothing you can do for yourself, I plead with you to come. Not physically, you don't need to come to me. Don't come to me unless you just want to talk about questions. Come to him. Come to him now. Come to him where you are. And even if you're a child of God already and there's sin in your life and it's just dominating you, then come to him. Eat and drink again. And so I plead with you, let today be your day, the day of salvation. And you know what? I'd love to hear about it. I don't need to know about it. It's between you and God. And I'd love to rejoice with you and help you. So here's the big point. To believe in Jesus is to take him into your soul by faith as one takes bread into his body by eating. And here's the question. Will you receive him today? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, talk about the gospel a lot here, but you know it's rare that I devote a whole message just speaking to those who may be hearing my voice and not really know you. I pray, Lord, as I prayed earlier and have been praying this week, as the elder pray, uh, elders prayed this morning very early, before sunrise this morning, would you come and save some? Would you come and do what you did in my father's life? who after decades and decades of believing he was a Christian, suddenly discovered the blinders came off and he realized he had been lost all that time. And he humbled himself and he became a new creature in Christ that day. Praise you for that. But, oh, Father, we ask you to do that now again. Not in his life, he's with you, but in the lives of anyone who is here today or hearing my voice by some other means, Lord, would you save them? Break through to them. Reveal to them their desperate need. Regenerate their heart and do for them the kind of changing of desires that only you can do. 
and give them the grace to respond to you, Father, and preserve them. For we pray it in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.